And Ed, happy first Father's Day. I'm excited for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. What a gift that you would reveal yourself to us through your written word that tells us about you and tells us how we can respond to you. So I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be attentive to your word now. I pray that you would speak through it and help us, not just to be hearers, but doers of your word, for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we likely recognize the name, if not the face, of George Mueller. Uh, What comes to mind when you hear the name George Mueller? Think probably orphans, right? George Mueller founded orphanages across England and took in literally thousands of orphans over the course of his life. The other thing I think of when I think of George Mueller is that he never asked another person for anything to provide for his orphanages. He brought those needs to God in prayer and experienced some amazing answers to prayer. Those are recorded in his biography, and I would highly recommend his biography to you. There are different versions of it, including an autobiography, but I know Moody Press put one out that's intended for young readers, and uh, it's, it's really, really good, the life of George Mueller. After George Mueller's death in 1898, the annual report of his institution that, that oversaw all of the orphanages gives an interesting account. Year by year in the annual reports, there were frequent entries of gifts to the institution by the same person who chose to be anonymous. That person identified himself or herself as a servant of the Lord Jesus who, constrained by the love of Christ, seeks to lay up treasure in heaven. That's it. The man who succeeded Mueller as head of the institution checked those entries out, added them all up, and found that this anonymous donor had given the aggregate sum of over 81,000 pounds in American dollars, 400,000. That is, is pretty amazing, but think also that was in the 1880s and 1890s. So we're looking at 100. 30, 140 years ago, $400,000, you can do the math. It's a huge sum. And further research showed the donor was George Mueller. When he died, his entire personal estate amounted to $845. And of that, his household effects, books, furniture, and other things amounted to over $500. So the only money he actually had at the time of his death was about 350 bucks. It's not bad. Give away 400000 and die with an estate worth about 800 He did what he set out to do. He laid up treasures in heaven. That's what Jesus tells us to do in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's take another look at the text, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is talking here about money. Literally, treasure. What comes to your mind when you think about treasure? You might think of a a pirate's chest full of treasure. Uh, You might think of a a dragon's lair uh, full of treasure, like in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, But what Jesus is talking about here is, is treasure as an asset that you plan to draw on. Uh, one you hope will be there when you need it, and one that is hopefully appreciating in value until the time you need it. It might take the form of equities, uh, precious metals, cash, a home, rental property. How do you measure your treasure? If you met with a financial advisor, he might Determine your net worth by asking you the value of three things. Your home, your investments, your retirement account. Jesus speaks of three things as well that people used to measure their wealth in the ancient Near East. Clothing, grain, and money. I believe that's what he's talking about in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth... And rust destroy where thieves break in and steal. First, he talks about things that moths can destroy. What can moths destroy? They destroy, they're notorious for destroying clothing, right? Clothing, especially fine clothing, was valued in that day. Still is. We want to look good. We talk about dressing for success. We know that people will make valued judgments on us based on how we're dressed. So, say you had a job interview tomorrow. Can you think of an outfit you would choose to wear? You probably have one that you could call to mind. It probably wouldn't be the same thing you would wear on your day off. probably wouldn't be something that you would wear while working in your garden probably wouldn't be something you would wear for a workout. It's going to be some special clothing. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 22, read earlier, we see Elisha's servant Gehazi. We see him running after Naaman the Syrian to get a gift from him on the sly. What uh, did he ask for? He asked, Gehaz, he asked uh, Naaman for a talent of silver and two changes of clothing, two outfits, we might say. And the commander of the army of Assyria would have some really good outfits. 
In Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, we see a name that lives in infamy, Achan. What did he do? He took some of the plunder from the battle of Jericho that was supposed to be devoted to the Lord, that is set apart for destruction. He took that stuff and he hid it in his tent. What item of that plunder is mentioned first? A beautiful cloak from Shinar. Some really fine threads. Clothing. And Jesus says, moths can eat some really fine threads. And they can be gone in a flash. Something else that uh, Jesus warns us against accumulating is things that rust can destroy. Literally, things that eaters can destroy. Uh, The Greek word there is translated as rust. It literally means eating, eating. It's true that rust eats at things. Just take a look at my pickup truck and you'll see that. But this verse is the only place where that word is translated rust. Everywhere else it's translated eaters or eating. And eaters here is likely referring to mice and rats. What do mice and rats like to eat? They like to eat grain. Wealth measured in grain was stored up in barns. Think about the parable of the rich fool that was read a little bit earlier. His crops did so well that he decided to tear down his present barns and build bigger ones. Big barns, full of grain. This man was wealthy in terms of a worldly perspective. The trouble was for this guy that his life was going to be ending that night and he didn't know it. And he would find himself standing before God with nothing. But even if he had survived, what you store away in barns gets nibbled away by the eaters, mice and rats. It doesn't last. There's a third thing, and that is things that thieves can steal. Literally, uh, they can dig through your walls and steal. House walls were made of baked clay in that day, and burglars could get in by digging through the wall. So he's talking here about a man who returns home and finds that his stuff is gone, and there is a hole in his wall that shows him how people got to it. All three of these things, clothing, grain, valuables, are things we value, things we pursue. And all of them, Jesus says, are things that can be lost in a short amount of time. Trouble with fine clothing is that one flaw can wreck the whole piece, right? Have you experienced that? I had a nice pair of wool slacks once back in the 80s. These slacks were really fine. They had buttons for braces. Do you know what I'm talking about? Buttons for braces. On the inside of the the top thing, there were buttons, and we wore braces. Call them suspenders right? But back then, we called them braces. And so we had buttons for braces on these, and and, uh, people would leave their suit coat off and show off their braces, you know. And so on a Sunday morning, I wore my fine slacks to church to preach, and I noticed that something had eaten a hole in the thigh. 
was embarrassing. I, I stayed fairly close to the pulpit. Nobody noticed. I'm thankful for that. But those pants were shot. They were shot. There's nothing I could do about them. From the one little hole, ruined the whole thing. I couldn't just stick a patch on them like it would a pair of jeans. And we might not store up grains in barns unless we're farmers, but we're experiencing something now in our economy that is an eater. It's high inflation. Uh, it nibbles away at our reserves. It nibbles away at our investments. My investments aren't worth now what they were two, three months ago. Eaters affect us as well. And we may not worry so much about someone digging through the walls of our houses to steal our treasures, but we do take precautions because of high-tech thieves who want to get at our stuff, right? It's why we have to change our account passwords every now and then. It's why we get a security code sent to our cell phone when we're doing a bank track transaction online. All these treasures, all these things that we value can be gone in a short amount of time. And Jesus calls us to value other things. Things that will last forever. And that value system that Jesus calls us to is vastly different from that of the culture that we live in. This whole section, Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24, is about our treasures. What we treasure will determine what we will invest in, verses 19 to 21. How we will live, verses 22 to 23, and who we will serve Verse 24. Let's unpack those. What we treasure will determine where we will invest. Look again at 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our heart will follow our treasure. So be careful where you store your treasure because your heart will follow it. Now, Jesus warns against storing things up on earth. What's he asking of us when he says that? Should we get rid of the things that we own? Take a vow of poverty? What's he asking us to do? He's not asking us to get rid of our possessions. Possessions can be greatly used for the kingdom of God. People with wealth have done some amazing things for the kingdom of God. I have uh, led three building programs, and I have seen some people with great wealth step up and make contributions for the kingdom of God. They use their wealth in a wonderful way for God's kingdom. He's also not asking us not to make provision for the future. Proverbs chapter 6 commends the ant who stores up for the winter, right? Go to the ant, thou sluggard. One of my friend's favorite verses, he used to give it to people all the time. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. The ant stores things up for future need. And in fact, in 1 Timothy 5.8, we find uh, Paul condemning the person who doesn't provide for his family. So we need to make provision for the future. Jesus isn't even asking us here 
not to enjoy what God has provided. Uh, that we just sort of live in a gray subsistence level. No, he says, enjoy it. Thank God for it. He says in 1 Timothy 6, 17, that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So thank God for it and enjoy it. So it's not any of those things that he's warning us against. He's warning us against the hoarding of earthly possessions. Lay up treasures in heaven instead. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Literally, lay up is treasure up. The word treasure shows up here not only in noun form, but in verb form several times in this passage. Don't treasure up treasures on earth. Treasure up treasures in heaven. In other words, don't pile stuff up here. Instead, store up treasures in heaven. What are those? What are treasures in heaven? They're things that we can develop now that will last for eternity. Can you think of a few? What can we develop now that will last for eternity? How about faith, hope, and love? Paul says those three remain. Those three go on. And something wonderful happens to the first two of those. Faith becomes sight when we are finally face-to-face with Christ. And hope becomes fulfilled when we are finally with him. Love alone goes on forever. How about storing up those things, investing in those? Another thing we can develop is knowledge of Christ. For the day that we see him face to face, what we learn of him now will make that day even more precious. We can also develop Christ-like character. To be conformed to his likeness is a worthy investment. We can develop disciples, people we have introduced to Christ and grown in their faith in him. We can also make financial investments in the kingdom that will bear fruit for eternity. These are things that last for eternity that we can be developing now. What's it look like to store them up in heaven? It's all about investing. Time, effort, talents, finances, investing those things for heaven's gain because they will last forever. What we treasure will determine where we will invest. Now, secondly, what we treasure will also determine how we will live. Uh, Look at verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness... How great is the darkness? This whole section, 19 to 24, hangs together. Verses 19 to 21 that we just looked at are clearly about money, right? About treasuring up treasures in heaven instead of on earth. Verse 24, at the end of it all, takes up that theme again, clearly about money, by saying uh, you can't serve both God and money. So what's with two verses in the middle about our eyes? What's that about? It's a good question. The eye speaks of the attitudes of the mind. 
Our eyes are our windows to the world. Our eyes will determine how we look at things. So Jesus says, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. That word healthy is an interesting word. The Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Old Testament was written in Hebrew, translated into Greek. We can do some comparing of words then that are Old Testament use words and New Testament use words. And so in the Septuagint, uh, that word is often translated generous, generous. And most English translations follow suit, and where that word occurs in the Old Testament, they translate it generous. And so Proverbs 11, verse 25 says, a generous person will prosper. Same word, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. And James chapter 1, verse 5 uses this same word to speak of how God gives wisdom to those who ask him for it. How does he give us wisdom? He gives it generously. Same word, generously. Let me mention just a few more. Romans chapter 12, verse 8. Paul is speaking in the context of spiritual gifts here. And he says, the one who contributes should contribute in generosity. Same word. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, where he's talking about the offering that the Macedonian churches took up to benefit the Jerusalem church. And he says, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, where he's urging the Corinthians now to follow the Macedonians' example and give to the Jerusalem church, he says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And two verses later, he says, and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others is the same word. So if your eye is healthy, the King James, if your eye be single, means if your eye is generous, generous. And if your eye is generous, your whole body, Jesus says, will be full of light. It will affect everything about you. On the other hand, if your eye is bad, verse 23, your whole body will be full of darkness. King James says, if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. We talk about giving someone the evil eye, right? kind of this dirty look. Um, evil eye. Uh, the idea comes across several times in the Old Testament to mean stingy, ungenerous, grudging, cheap, miserly. So in Proverbs 28, 22, it says, a stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. A stingy man. King James, New King James, New American says, a man with an evil eye. Proverbs 23, verse 6 says, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Again, King James uses a man with an evil eye. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 9, Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release, is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. Your eye look grudgingly. Uh, the footnote in my ESV says, if your eye be evil. Same 
idea there, same word. So if your eye is bad, it means if your eye is stingy, ungenerous. You see how this ties in with the rest of the passage on the theme of money? And if your eye is stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. It will affect everything about you. The fact that this instruction that appears to be about our eyes is sandwiched between Jesus talking about where we store up our treasures and how we can't serve both God and money tells me we're on target. It's not two verses talking about eyesight in the middle of a section talking about money. It's talking about generosity, how we will live, what kind of outlook we will have in life. What's that mean for us then? Well, let's just try reading it, substituting the word outlook for I, and generous and ungenerous for healthy and bad. Here's how it would look. If your outlook is generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your outlook is ungenerous, your whole body will be full of darkness. So we can have a generous outlook or an ungenerous one. Grace or law? Kindness or condemnation? Generosity implies what we'll do with our money, but it doesn't end there. It affects everything about us. Someone who is generous with his or her money is going to be generous in other things as well. It's all based on God's generosity toward us in Christ. Having been recipients of God's grace, we become conveyors of God's grace. Grace givers, generous in many ways. What we treasure will determine how we live. As generous grace givers or as ungenerous grace hoarders. Third, What we treasure will also determine who we will serve, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's not wrong to possess things. It is wrong for our things to possess us. And we can get to that point easily. Here's the problem Jesus points to in this verse. Uh, Slavery mentioned here has never been a part-time thing. A slave master made exclusive demands on his slave. Couldn't be shared with another master. And the twist for us is that we get to choose our master, but whatever master we choose is still our master. Paul tells us that when we become Christians, we become Christ followers, we owe him our complete allegiance. We are voluntarily slaves of God. We choose him as our master. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So we took on a new master when we uh, trusted in Christ. 
We were slaves to sin. We now become slaves to God, new master. We obey him because he is our master. We are his slaves. Our role is to obey him alone. He demands exclusive obedience and allegiance from us. We can't split it. In 2 Kings chapter 17, there's an interesting story starting at verse 24. We find the Assyrians who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, those ten northern tribes, 722 B.C., the Assyrians settled all sorts of people into the towns of Israel that they had conquered, took the cream of the crop away, settled all sorts of people there. And the text tells us that those people who they settled there did not fear the Lord. They worshiped graven images. So the text tells us God sent lions, and the lions killed a number of them, And the report of that came back to the king of Assyria. He said, well, I've got a solution. Send a priest. Send one of the priests that we captured back to that region. He'll understand what the gods of that region require. We can appease the gods and the lions will stop killing people. Maybe they'll even go away. So they sent a priest. priest came, lived in Bethel, taught these people how to fear the Lord. And they still made their own gods and worshipped them alongside the Lord. Verse 41 sums up the section and says this, They feared the Lord and also served their carved images. It's that and also part that's troublesome, huh? God won't settle for and also. We can't worship and serve him and worship and serve something else at the same time. Joshua, in chapter 24, verse 15, says, Choose this day whom you will serve. Is it going to be the Lord? Or is it going to be the gods your fathers served in Egypt? Uh, Make a decision. Choose who you're going to serve because you can't serve both. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You can't serve two masters. God demands our allegiance. You can't serve God and money. When we try to serve both, we become enslaved to the things that were intended to serve us. We can become enslaved to credit card debt, to uh, accumulating more possessions, to trying to get better possessions. It can enslave us. Choose to serve God as your master. And make money your servant. Money makes a fine servant, but a terrible master. What we treasure will determine who we will serve. This whole section that we've been looking about, looking at, is about choices. Choices. Two places compete for our investment. Choose heaven. Lay up your treasures there. Two outlooks compete for our perspective. Choose generosity. Be grace givers in light of the grace you've been given by God. Two masters compete for our service. Choose God. He alone is worthy of our devotion. 
Is there one of those three choices that you find yourself struggling with more than the other two? Would it be the investment part? Are you finding yourself investing more here on earth than you are in heaven? Would it be the generosity part? Do you have a hard time being generous? Not only with your money, but with words of kindness or actions toward other people who don't deserve your generosity any more than you deserve God's generosity? Do you, do you struggle with the third part, um, the idea of, of serving God rather than serving your possessions? Do you find that some of your possessions have become your master? And is there something that you need to do about your treasures this week? I would encourage you to make use of the questions for further thought in your program. Maybe you can use those around your dinner table. Maybe you can use those um, in a small group setting. But I, I hope that those will be helpful as we think through the implications of treasuring up treasures in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you again for this, your word. I pray, Father, that it would penetrate our hearts that it would convince us of what we need to do with the things that you have entrusted to us so that we can use them to serve you, to extend your kingdom, and to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.